Well, I have to tell you, I have, uh, I have never been a big fan of the Dallas Cowboys, okay? And I realize that, <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. I, I realize they're a rather polemic team, so you either love the Cowboys or you hate the Cowboys, and I have tended not to be on the love the Cowboys side of things. And there are a ton of different reasons for that, some of it personality-driven and some of it driven in a lot of other ways, but... Over the course of the last couple years, that's changed for me a little bit, and one player in particular has changed some of that. About three years ago or so, I started watching uh, a guy named Tony Romo play, and I was impressed just by the way he played the game, his cool in the pocket and and how he led and how he did things. Uh, But then I was even more impressed as I watched post-game interviews, you know, and you've come to expect this level of of egotism and and, uh, near narcissism, just this stereotypical professional athlete, right? You just see these very arrogant people a lot of times, and I was very impressed with some of that that I didn't see in Tony Romo. But then in the last couple months, I've heard of a few stories that have even uh, taken it to another level for me. Uh, You may or may not know that after the first game of the season, after the opener, Dallas Cowboys won, and Tony Romo was on his way home from the game. On his way home, he saw a car over by the side of the road and a couple that was trying to figure out how they were going to change the tire on their car. And Tony Romo stops off after a game that he won through over 300 yards and a touchdown, and he stops off and helps this couple change their tire. Then he gets back in his car and heads on out, and they don't even realize until later who it was that was there helping them out. And just a few weeks ago, I read of another story where Tony Romo was on his way into a movie with a friend, and he saw a homeless guy handing out flyers on the street. And Tony Romo walked over to him and said, hey, why don't you come on in with my friend and I and go to this movie? And so here you have a professional athlete whose face is plastered all around the country, who sits through a 90-minute movie with a homeless man and a friend of his. And they say, as the story goes, the homeless man leaned in and said, I'm I'm really sorry, I haven't taken a shower in a couple days, I kind of smell. And Tony Romo said, that's okay, man, I hang out in locker rooms all the time. It's really no big deal. But see, it's the little things that make a world of difference, isn't it? It's the little things that make a world of difference. And there have been a lot of opportunities that we've been talking about lately, and a few that that I want to show you here. Um, Bloodwater Mission, I know that Brandon Boltinghouse talked last week about what an incredible opportunity for $3,000. We can build a well in, in an African village where people are walking sometimes 30 and 40 miles to get clean water. It seems pretty amazing that for $3,000, we can change people's lives forever. Uh, Tom Shoes is another uh, ministry where uh, you go on their website, and for somewhere between $40 and $70, you buy a pair of shoes. And for each pair of shoes you buy, they send one, uh, another pair somewhere in the world. And just this week, our our intern Nash was telling me about rosaloves.com, which is an incredible opportunity where they go and they find a very specific need in the world. Let's say there's a guy in a village in South America whose tractor is broken down and he's not able to farm anymore for his entire community. Well, they'll figure out exactly how much money it's going to take. They design a shirt and then on the inside of the shirt, they print the story. And you can buy that shirt to specifically help that situation somewhere in the world. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? How the small things can make all the difference. 
And then for us, this has been pretty near and dear to our heart. Uh, I want to show you the two newest members of our family. Unfortunately, they still have to live in their home in India. Uh, but this is Trishna and Rasita. These are two compassion girls that we sponsor. And, and we're really excited about the fact that, that these young ladies will grow up with our young ladies in our house, writing them letters and including them as a part of our family. You see, we're heading into this season now, and I don't know how many, let's show, hot show fans, how many were out shopping on Friday? How many of the crazies? Okay, just a few, not, 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 not a ton. We're heading into this season that is all about God's love, where we celebrate the fact that God loved us so much, he sent his son to this earth to live among us and to die for our sins. And yet this season has become all about us in a lot of ways, hasn't it? Well, maybe this year is an opportunity for Christians everywhere to rise up and show God's love and be God's love in this world. We're in a series called It's All About Love, and uh, we're working through the book of 1 John. So I want to have you turn to that today. Uh, we're in the second chapter of 1 John, uh, verse 18. 1 John is right at the end of your Bible. <clears throat> 1 John 2, verse 18. Here's what John says. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, there are two big ideas there that John's talking about, okay? This idea of the last hour and the idea of the Antichrist. And you look at this and you say, well, how can this be? Okay, if he talks about the last hour, that, that Jesus' return is imminent, well, <laughs> A lot of hours have passed between the end of the first century when he writes this and 2008 today, hasn't it? In fact, even Peter in the book of 2 Peter talks about that Christians are being scoffed at because a lot of Christians in Jesus' day assumed that, the, that, that Jesus would return in their lifetime and people outside the church were making fun of them because Jesus hadn't come back yet. But here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, and I think this is a key issue that, that is part of a, a lot of the tension that happens in our faith today, isn't it? That God's timetable isn't the same as our timetable. That God doesn't operate in the ways we expect him, the ways we think he should. That because we prayed for something, we assume he should do it on the timeline that we gave to him. But God wants everyone to come to a relationship with him. God wants everyone to come to repentance. And he's made that decision to wait until that happens. To wait until at least everyone has had an opportunity to hear about him. You want to speed up this last hour? You want to make it fast? You want to bring Christ's second coming? Then tell more people about him. Well, the second idea John hits on here is this idea of the Antichrist. Okay, and I know that we have a lot of different ideas built up in our minds of what uh, an Antichrist looks like. You know, a lot of us are thinking of things like this seven-headed beast that we read about in Revelation, or, or we think of, uh, you know, one political candidate or another. I've heard that word get thrown out a lot this year. Uh, or hopefully none of you refer to any of your in-laws this year over Thanksgiving uh, with this term. But we have a lot of different ideas of what Antichrist might look like. 
And John, you'd be interested to know that the word Antichrist only appears five times in the New Testament, and it's all in the books of John, First and Second John. And there are two basic meanings that he has here. The first is something we put in place of Christ, a substitute, something that we have put in place of Jesus in our lives. And, uh, and we all know, we'll roll this picture, we all know that... Uh, Cheap substitutes never quite suffice, do they? Any, I'm sorry. Anyway. And the second thing is this. Something or someone who opposes Christ in your life. Direct opposition to Christ in your life. And for John, very specifically, it's people who have left his fellowships. People who have left the church that John has helped to minister to. And those people have left because they say that Jesus is not God's son. And because of that heretical teaching, people are leaving, and that's what John is addressing here in this passage, okay? So the question is not so much, how do we protect against the Antichrist in some war versus heaven and hell kind of sense? The question is, what is the Antichrist in your life? Or maybe, who are the Antichrists in your life? What is it that you have substituted in place of your relationship with Jesus? Who is it that stands in direct opposition in your life to what Christ is trying to do? Okay, and I think as I read this, it's both freeing and terrifying. See, it's freeing because I don't have to have nightmares about some beast or whatever or some war between the worlds, but it's terrifying because I realize the Antichrists take on a ton of different forms and they're far more attractive in my life. Well, John continues on, he says this, that you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. This word anointing is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's got this idea of, of medical ointment or pain medication that gets rubbed in and, and literally the word picture he's trying to paint is that the Holy Spirit has rubbed into us, has given us the knowledge we need to stop from being led astray. And then he says this next thing, and I think this is key for us in the 21st century. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie comes from the truth. No lie comes from the truth. And James says it this way in James 3. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh, water, can both fresh and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Matthew 6, 24, we learn. Okay, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But isn't that what we have done in the church in the 21st century? See, we've created kind of this, this false dichotomy that exists where we think that we can live life over here and we can do church over here. Right? We've, we, we live our lives however we want. We get to be in charge of our own little worlds, and we run these crazy schedules. We're always on the go, doing whatever we please, whenever we want. And then we give an hour or two a week to God. And maybe even we serve in the nursery, and we do things like that. But, but what has often happened is that these two worlds never meet. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if $450 billion gets spent every year in this country on Christmas, when $10 billion would give water to the world, then these two worlds have yet to collide. We have a sense where we live life and we do church. I had an opportunity uh, last week to be with a friend, and uh, we have friends that went to Bosnia. They went overseas to do missions as a family, and they were gone for three years and just came back. And, uh, and I had the privilege of, of meeting up while I was at the National Missionary Convention last week with one of our friends and just kind of talking with her. Her name's Paula. And I was kind of talking with her about her experience over there and finding out. And, uh, we had just the opportunity, the privilege to kind of bless them and, and support them financially while they were overseas. And I was talking with Paula about what it's been like to come back. And I said, tell me, you know, tell me what you've seen. What, what sticks out at you now? What are the things that drive you crazy having been gone for three years and coming back? And she said, here's, here's what I see right now. I see that there's a difference between American Christians and Christians in America. She said, it depends on which word comes first for you. Because she said, I see a lot of people who live, you know, this American dream and and who are lusting after stuff and acquiring more things, and that stuff drives them. In fact, in some ways, it enslaves them. And she said, to be fair, I still have a ton of friends, and I see plenty of people who are Christians first, who understand that their citizenship is in heaven first and foremost, and they just happen to live in, in the richest country in the world. But I think it's a question for us to ask ourselves. Okay, are you a consumer in a spiritual culture? Or are you a Christ follower who happens to live in a consumer-driven country? Are we American Christians or are we Christians who live in America? Well, on the way back from that trip, uh, I was riding with a friend, and we were talking um, about our own lives and ministry and how things were happening and what was going on, and, and we kind of, the conversation turned a little more towards accountability, and we were talking about how we make decisions in our own life to guard our hearts and to protect our purity and, and how that has impacted us. And as this conversation progressed, we, uh, we talked a little bit about friends we've had who have made mistakes and things that have happened and, and all that kind of stuff. And I tell you what, after this conversation, I am convinced that those we've seen, uh, Christian leaders or ministers or whoever friends we've had, who have had some kind of big failure in their life, that failure didn't happen overnight. See, I think relationships are a lot like a rubber band where there's pulling and there's tension Okay, anybody who's been in a relationship more than a few months understands sometimes there's a lot of tension. Okay, sometimes things are easy and sometimes, sometimes things are a bit tougher. And for us in our lives, what we have to understand is that you either make decisions to grow closer or you drift apart. Because we live lives that are constantly on the go, don't we? We're moving to practice, we're taking the kids here or there, we're going to work, we're late, we're running, we've got to grab lunch, we've got to do all these different things in our lives. We are either growing closer to those in our lives or we are drifting apart. And I know that there's oftentimes one thing that snaps that relationship finally. 
But I would argue that that tension has been there for months and years all along the way. Where are you at in your relationship with God? Are you at a point where you're drifting and drifting and drifting and something needs to be done? Where are you in God in your relationship right now? Well, John continues on and he says this. He says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And like I said earlier, John in his context was dealing very specifically with people who were leaving his church and saying, Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah that we have been expecting. And I don't hear that criticism as much in our world today, but here's where I think this really plays out for us as Christians today. I hear much more often this idea that, that I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Okay, I'm a big fan of Christ, and I have a relationship with him, and I've given my life over, but the church, I'm not sure about the church. And I heard Rick Warren talk at a conference last year. If you don't know who Rick Warren is, he's the guy who wrote Purpose Driven Life, uh, which is a book that is basically the second highest selling book in history next to the Bible. I don't even know how many 40 million or more copies that that book has sold. And Rick Warren was talking about this idea, and I, and I really perked up because this is a, something I hear in my generation a whole lot. And he said this, he said, imagine, Rick Warren's a big guy, okay, so coming from him, he said this, imagine what would happen to you, imagine what I would do to you if you walked up to me and said, Rick, I love you, but I hate your wife. He said, how in the world can we say we love Christ and we hate his bride? No lie can come from the truth. And you say, well, listen, I, the, the church is full of, of hypocritical, sinful, broken, messed up people. Sure, that's why you get to come. <laughs> that's why I'm welcome here as well. Because the church is full of people just like us. He says this, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. And this is kind of where it goes uh, for John here. This is the solution, okay? It's twofold. Get to know your Bible and get to know your God. When he talks about remain in the things, uh, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Again, he's talking about those truths of the Old Testament, those truths that have fed his congregation, all right? We were at the end of the conversation series over in Collision, and because we have a little bit smaller crowd over there, when we did the Q&A uh, session, we were able to just do that live. So we had a panel of coaches sitting up in front of the room, and the students were able to ask them questions. And I remember one student asking a question to the panel, saying, what if I, I, what if I want to share my faith, and I just don't know any scriptures? Okay, what if I just don't know what's in the Bible? And my beautiful, amazing, sweet, loving wife said... If you don't know what's in your Bible, there's an easy fix. Read it. Okay, open it up and look at what's inside. That is the easiest way to remedy that situation. Okay, I hear all the time, well, doesn't it say in the Bible? And I'm always, uh, I always answer with this really obnoxious thing of, well, I don't know, does it? You tell me. Does it say that in the Bible? 
Okay, but I think that biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest threats to the church today because we talk about this idea of, of Satan and of Antichrist coming in and wanting to mess up what is going on in our lives. And if we are not grounded in God's word, how in the world are we going to be able to survive those attacks? The, the best piece of advice I would give you is get a study Bible. Now you say, which study Bible would you recommend? Well, I just happened to bring a few with me today. Okay, the first is, uh, and this used to be my favorite. You can see it's very well-worn. The first church I ever worked at, part-time in college, gave me this Bible. This is the Quest Study Bible. It's a great study Bible because it answers questions in the margins. Now, one of the problems I found with the Quest uh, is that sometimes you have questions that aren't specifically answered in the margins. So I found one that I like even better, and this is probably my favorite study Bible out today. It's the Life Application Study Bible. And I especially like this one in New Living Translation. This is the one I use a lot of times for my own devotional reading. Uh, it's a little bit more readable translation than the NIV. Uh, but this is just chock full of, of notes and things like that, uh, answers to questions and explanations of things in the margin. Now, if you're one of those uh, nerdy type people like me and you find yourself sitting at home watching the History Channel and stuff like that, um, there is a, a Bible I found a couple years ago called the NIV Archaeological Study Bible. And this is one that, that talks about historic things and, and how those and different uh, major you know, world religion type things that were happening around Bible times, just all kinds of different things. This is a really, really neat study tool. Uh, if you're a little more academic type person, the NIV Study Bible also has a ton of notes, but is a little more academic version. And then another one that I really like for devotional reading, it's not a study Bible, but it's uh, Eugene's Pe Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And very specifically, I like the message remix. The difference there is they've put chapter no or they put verse and chapter numbers in in the Bible. Okay, and this one is uh, you know this this one is a little bit lighter. Okay, this is a paraphrase, not a translation. But this is one that just kind of helps uh, along the way. At least help has helped me to kind of encourage my faith along the way. Okay, but listen, folks, there's just no substitute. If you want to have a relationship with the God of the universe, it begins by reading his book, by reading the word that he has given us so that we might know him. So get to know your Bible and get to know your God. We offered students a couple weeks ago what we kind of called a one-hour challenge. And it's the same thing that I would lay for before you today. We offered them a challenge to spend one hour this week with God. Listen, I know that life is busy, and I know that it's crazy, and I know that tons of things are happening, and maybe the thought of one hour is intimidating for you. Well, then start small. Break it up into uh, four 15-minute segments or whatever it looks like for you, okay? And maybe it begins, with you, begins for you by reading your Bible, or maybe it looks like spending time at a coffee shop talking about faith stuff with a friend, or journaling or spending time in prayer, or listening to music and enjoying some quiet time of meditation, whatever it is, what would your life look like if you spent one hour with God this week? How might your life and your faith be impacted if you spent time with him? And I've been so proud of some of our students who have taken this seriously who are spending time working on their faith. Uh, you heard Brandon talk last week, uh, again, about the blood water mission. There are gonna be students out in the lobby today who wanna talk even more about that because our students are serious. They have decided that one of the ways they want to serve God is to build a well in Africa. 
And they're looking, they're, they're a, they are impassioned to go and raise $3,000 so that they can be a part of building that well. Okay, relationships aren't stagnant. We either make choices to grow closer to God or we drift away from him. Well, here's how he closes out this session, section. He says this, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Remain in him. Get to know your Bible, get to know your God, and remain in him. Listen, we all have a basic understanding of how God wants us to live, whether this is your very first week in church or you've been in church your entire life. We have that conscience that God has given us through his Holy Spirit inside of us. We understand how it is that he expects us to live. The question is, will we live that way? Are we on God's side in this world or not? Do the things that break the heart of God pierce ours as well? Will you this week take a stand? Will you break free of the stranglehold that the world has on us? Will you commit to spending time with him? Will you refuse to settle for some cheap substitute imitation imposter Christ in our lives? Break free and live free.